0: section 24 of history of egypt volume 1 by gaston maspero Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain chapter 3 the legendary history of egypt part 8 these machinations were wont to be met by others of the same kind and magic if invoked at the right moment was often able to annul the ills which magic had begun it was not indeed all powerful against fate the man born on the 27th of Paufi would die of a snake bite whatever charm he might use to protect himself. But if the day of his death were foreordained, at all events the year in which it would occur was uncertain, and it was easy for the magician to arrange that it should not take place prematurely. A formula recited opportunely, a sentence of prayer traced on a papyrus, a little statuette worn about the person, the smallest amulet blessed and consecrated, put to flight the serpents who were the instruments of fate, Those curious stelae, on which we see Horace half-naked, standing on two crocodiles and brandishing in his fists creatures which had reputed powers of fascination, were so many protective talismans, set up at the entrance to a room or a house. They kept off the animals represented and brought the evil fate to naught. Sooner or later destiny would doubtless prevail, and the moment would come when the fated serpent, eluding all precautions, would succeed in carrying out the sentence of death. At all events the man would have lived, perhaps to the verge of old age, perhaps to the years of a hundred and ten, to which the wisest of the Egyptians hoped to attain, and which period no man born of mortal mother might exceed. If the arts of magic could thus suspend the law of destiny, how much more efficacious were they when combating the influences of secondary deities, the evil eye, and the spells of man! Thought, who was the patron of sortilage, presided also over exorcisms, AND THE CRIMINAL ACTS WHICH SOME COMMITTED IN HIS NAME COULD HAVE REPARATION MADE FOR THEM BY OTHERS IN HIS NAME. TO MALICIOUS GENIE GENIES STILL STRONGER WERE OPPOSED, TO HARMFUL AMULETS, THOSE WHICH WERE PROTECTIVE, TO DESTRUCTIVE MEASURES, VITALIZING REMEDIES, AND THIS WAS NOT EVEN THE MOST TROUBLESOME PART OF THE MAGICIAN'S TASK. NOBODY, IN FACT, AMONG THOSE DELIVERED BY THEIR INTERVENTION, ESCAPED UNHURT FROM THE TRIALS TO WHICH HE HAD BEEN SUBJECTED. The possessing spirits, when they quitted their victim, generally left behind them traces of their occupation, in the brain, heart, lungs, intestines, in fact in the whole body. The illnesses to which the human race is prone were not indeed all brought about by enchanters relentlessly persecuting their enemies, but they were all attributed to the presence of an invisible being, whether specter or demon, who by some supernatural means had been made to enter the patient, or who, unbidden, had by malice or necessity taken up his abode within him. It was needful, after expelling the intruder, to re-establish the health of the sufferer by means of fresh remedies. The study of simples and other materiae medicae would furnish these. Thought had revealed himself to man as the first magician. He became, in like manner for them, the first physician and the first surgeon. Egypt is naturally a very salubrious country, and the egyptians boasted that they were the healthiest of all mortals but they did not neglect any precautions to maintain their health every month for 3 successive days they purged the system by means of emetics or clisters the study of medicine with them was divided between specialists each physician attending to one kind of illness only every place possessed several doctors some for diseases of the eyes others for the head or the teeth or the stomach or for internal disorders. But the subdivision was not carried to the extent that Herodotus would make us believe. It was the custom to make a distinction only between the physician trained in the priestly schools, and further instructed by daily practice and study of books, the bone-setter attached to the worship of Sokit, who treated fractures by the intercession of the goddess, and the exorcist who professed to cure by the sole virtue of amulets and magic phrases. The professional doctor treated all kinds of maladies, but, as with us, there were specialists for certain affections, who were consulted in preference to general practitioners. If the number of these specialists was so considerable as to attract the attention of strangers, it was because the climatic character of the country necessitated it. Where ophthalmia and affections of the intestines raged violently, we necessarily find many oculists as well as doctors for internal maladies. The best instructed, however, knew but little of anatomy, as with christian physicians of the middle ages religious scruples prevented the egyptians from cutting open or dissecting in the cause of pure science the dead body which was identified with that of osiris the processes of embalming which would have instructed them in anatomy were not entrusted to doctors the horror was so great with which any one was regarded who mutilated the human form that the parasite on whom devolved the duty of making necessary incisions in the dead "'became the object of universal execration. "'As soon as he had finished his task, "'the assistants assaulted him, "'throwing stones at him with such violence "'that he had to take to his heels "'to escape with his life. "'The knowledge of what went on within the body "'was therefore but vague. "'Life seemed to be a little air, "'a breath which was conveyed by the veins "'from member to member. "'The head contains twenty-two vessels, "'which draw the spirits into it "'and send them thence to all parts of the body.' There are two vessels for the breasts, which communicate heat to the lower parts. There are two vessels for the thighs, two for the neck, two for the arms, two for the back of the head, two for the forehead, two for the eyes, two for the eyelids, two for the right ear by which enter the breaths of life, and two for the left ear, which in like manner admit the breaths of death. The breaths entering the right ear are the good airs, the delicious airs of the North, the sea-breeze which tempers the burning of summer and renews the strength of man, continually weakened by the heat and threatened with exhaustion. These vital spirits, entering the veins and arteries by the ear or nose, mingled with the blood, which carried them to all parts of the body. They sustained the animal, and were, so to speak, the cause of its movement. The heart, the perpetual mover, ha collected them and redistributed them throughout the body. It was regarded as the beginning of all the members, and whatever part of the living body the physician touched, whether the head, the nape of the neck, the hands, the breast, the arms, the legs, his hand lit upon the heart, and he felt it beating under his fingers. Under the influence of the good breaths, the vessels were inflated and worked regularly. Under that of the evil, they became inflamed, were obstructed, were hardened, or gave way, and the physician had to remedy the obstruction— allay the inflammation, and re-establish their vigor and elasticity. At the moment of death, the vital spirits withdrew the soul, the blood deprived of air became coagulated, the veins and arteries emptied themselves, and the creature perished for want of breaths. The majority of the diseases from which the ancient Egyptians suffered are those which still attack their successors—ophthalmia, affections of the stomach, abdomen and bladder, intestinal worms, varicose veins, ulcers in the leg, the Nile pimple, and finally the divine mortal malady, the divinus morbus of the Latins, epilepsy. Anemia, from which at least one-fourth of the present population suffers, was not less prevalent than at present, if we may judge from the number of remedies which were used against hematuria, the principal cause of it. The fertility of the women entailed a number of infirmities or local affections, which the doctors attempted to relieve, not always with success. The science of those days treated externals only, and occupied itself merely with symptoms easily determined by sight or touch. It never suspected that troubles which showed themselves in two widely remote parts of the body might only be different effects of the same illness, and they classed as distinct maladies those indications which we now know to be symptoms of one disease. They were able, however, to determine fairly well the specific characteristics of ordinary affections, and sometimes describe them in precise and graphic fashion. The abdomen is heavy, the pit of the stomach painful, the heart burns and palpitates violently. The clothing oppresses the sick man, and he can barely support it. Nocturnal thirsts. His heart is sick, as that of a man who has eaten of the sycamore gum. The flesh loses its sensitivity, as that of a man seized with illness. If he seek to satisfy a want of nature, he finds no relief. Say to this, there is an accumulation of humours in the abdomen, which makes the heart sick. I will act. This is the beginning of gastric fever, so common in Egypt, and a modern physician could not better diagnose such a case. The phraseology would be less flowery, but the analysis of the symptoms would not differ from that given us by the ancient practitioner. The medicaments recommended comprise nearly everything which can, in some way or other, be swallowed, whether in solid, mucilaginous or liquid form vegetable remedies are reckoned by the score from the most modest herb to the largest tree such as the sycamore palm acacia and cedar of which the sawdust and shavings were supposed to possess both antiseptic and emollient properties among the mineral substances are to be noted sea-salt alum nitre, sulphate of copper and a score of different kinds of stones among the latter the memphite stone was distinguished for its virtues if applied to parts of the body which were lacerated or unhealthy it acted as an antiseptic and facilitated the success of surgical operations flesh taken from the living subject the heart the liver the gall the blood either dried or liquid of animals either dried or liquid of animals the hair and horn of stags were all customarily used in many cases where the motive determining their preference above other materiae medicae is unknown to us Many recipes puzzle us by their originality and by the barbaric character of the ingredients recommended. The milk of a woman who has given birth to a boy, the dung of a lion, a tortoise's brains, an old book boiled in oil. The medicaments composed of these incongruous substances were often very complicated. It was thought that the healing power was increased by multiplying the curative elements. Each ingredient acted upon a specific region of the body, and after absorption separated itself from the rest to bring its influence to bear upon that region. The physician made use of all the means which we employ today to introduce remedies into the human system, whether pills or potions, poultices or ointments, draughts or clisters. Not only did he give the prescriptions, but he made them up, thus combining the art of the physician with that of the dispenser. He prescribed the ingredients, pounded them either separately or together, he macerated them in the proper way, boiled them, reduced them by heating, and filtered them through linen. Fat served him as the ordinary vehicle for ointments, and pure water for potions, but he did not despise other liquids, such as wine, beer, fermented or unfermented, vinegar, milk, olive oil, Ben oil, either crude or refined, even the urine of men and animals. The whole, sweetened with honey, was taken hot, night and morning." The use of more than one of these remedies became world-wide. The Greeks borrowed them from the Egyptians. We have piously accepted them from the Greeks, and our contemporaries still swallow with resignation many of the abominable mixtures invented on the banks of the Nile long before the building of the pyramids. End of section twenty four read by Professor Heather and by For more free audio books or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org.